bringing you inside the latest stories in sports business and advice from some of the best in the industry. This is BSSF's Sports Business Podcast, presented by the Business of Sports Society at Fordham. Welcome in, everybody, to episode two to our BSSF Sports Business Podcast. Glad to be back with you again, Nicholas Lehman with Alex Woltz. We got a lot of breaking news coming out this week about the New York Mets and the Big Ten. Uh, didn't see anticipate this coming out this week, but Steve Cohen has uh, bought the Mets for $2.475 billion. And uh, the Big Ten suddenly announced it's returning on October 23rd. So we'll get into both of those stories as we go, but I'll bring in Alex now to just touch on those first two big two big pieces of sports news, sports business coming out this week. I'm trying to weigh which one is a bigger story that we should talk about first, because you think about how crazy this is. I know the Mets conversation we've been having for a while. Uh, you know, we know a lot of Mets fans, of course, in our area, and this is something they've been waiting for, for not, not even days or weeks, but years, I think it's fair to say. But the Big Ten, that's fascinating to me. It really is. I think, look back a, f- a few weeks ago, and we didn't think this was ever going to happen, a, a Big Ten season. But you know what? College football is underway now. We, we saw some games last week. They went largely well, I would say. And now the Big Ten following suit and getting into it. And uh, I think that's just fascinating to see where we were a few months ago. And now we're going to get some Big Ten football. But the Mets is the one I think, I think it's fair to start with for us, just because we are in that New York area that is – that's our home base, if you will. And no, I mean, this is, this is the big news. I think that Steve Cohen, we've talked about it for a while. He's got you know, the big pockets, the money to make the Mets a contender again. And uh, he's finally got his hands on the team. Yeah. I mean, especially for him growing up as a Mets fan out in Queens, uh, he's able to buy his uh, favorite childhood team for, you know, just, just a small price. That's uh, all. Yeah, that's all. Uh, it's now the most expensive uh, sale of a sports franchise in history and beating out the Carolina Panthers sale um, in the NFL. So we'll be talking about that and the Big Ten and kind of the backstory to the Big Ten that you may not think is the reason why they're returning. You may not know about this. So we'll get, it, we'll get to all that in a bit. Uh, the U.S. Open tennis finished this weekend. Uh, great play all around. Uh, we'll talk about the business side of how that went and uh, really taking a, a hard hit despite – sponsorships themselves being up but it was really great to see the event go off well the quality of play be high and just really trying to incorporate all of their partners as best as they could throughout the two-week tournament yeah I mean I'm a big tennis fan Nick and I do have to say it, it wasn't the same obviously but I do think tennis is one of those sports that's not as dependent on fans as others you know at the end of the day it's a one versus one game. Your eyes are focused on the court. And at the end of the day, that was still there. And I mean, let's be honest, fans are silent during points anyway. So, you know, we're not losing as much as we would in other sports. So no, it was fun to watch the U S open. And it is such an event though, that's dependent on sponsorships. And we still, we did, we did still see a lot of that. And it was good to see the U S open, like you said, go off, even though we couldn't be there ourselves. Yeah. Especially because a lot of um, brands have been pulling back. Uh, even from these, you know, once a year events, they have been pulling back, deferring to next year. Uh, credit to the U.S. Open and the USDA for having those sponsorships uh, still still happen, and uh, credit to making the uh, creative and unique ways to um, fulfill those. Uh, we'll talk about one of them in a in a short bit. So. Another thing we mentioned last week is the NFL is back. So when we recorded last week, it was opening night. 
And now the ratings have came in, come in, and Sunday Night Football, opening night, and Monday Night Football were all down. The Fox broadcasts, surprisingly, were up. But um, a lot of storylines out of the first week of NFL football, despite some great play with no preseason games, but some, some interesting storylines. We'll be talking about some of the anthem protests and kind of what I predicted last week, which was – reaction from some fans this time mainly in Kansas City about the uh, protests happening even though there was no kneeling in those protests it was just a sign of solidarity between the teams and the players uh, fans still booed and it, it sent a bit of shockwaves through through the league after Thursday night yeah I mean the, the NFL is in such an interesting position right now of course the majority of teams having no fans but there are some there and yeah like you mentioned Nick we're really seeing now the intersection of where the fans stand and where the players stand. And this is a story that we're going to follow, I think, throughout the season and not just in the NFL, but in sports throughout the country as fans do return. And whether or not that had an impact on the ratings, uh, we're not really sure. We'll unpack that a little bit in that segment. But in general, it's just interesting to see the NFL back in the way that it is and also the fans' reaction. There's definitely a lot to unpack and we'll follow it along as the season goes. For sure. And then our last story is going to be about sports betting and it's such a growing industry both in sports and in business uh, because of some of the states legalizing sports betting. New Jersey just broke the record for most money bet in a month beating out Nevada, which that says something because that's Las Vegas. They hit $668 million bet in one month. Most of that, 90% of that being online. Uh, So it shows a sign of things to come. Uh, from other states outside of the city of Las Vegas, the state of Nevada, when it comes to sports betting and how it's really growing. And on the heels of that, the New York Giants just signed a major sports betting deal with DraftKings uh, the same day that this positive news was announced. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about because we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but the Giants as a franchise, you know, linking up with DraftKings is an interesting story, and you'll have some great insight on that with your experience with the with the franchise. And in general, just seeing New Jersey kind of topping those uh, sports betting re- uh, Marks, I, I think we'll see a little bit why New Jersey. I think that's kind of a fair question to ask. But in general, it is interesting. You talk about sports betting, it's definitely blown up, I think. You just follow social media when a game's going on and the conversations are always circling around betting. You know, it just seems like that's where the culture lies right now with sports. And it's no surprise that we're generating millions of dollars because of it. So really interesting to see sports coming back and, and betting is right there with it. Absolutely. So with all that being said, let's go back up to the top. And talk about the Mets, New York Mets being sold to Steve Cohen earlier this week. Now, this was a long time coming. Earlier last year, it was said that Cohen was in negotiations with the Wilpon family and they fell through. So later this year, there was a bit of a bidding war. Uh, Alex Rodriguez, former Yankee star, and uh, his fiance, uh, Jennifer Lopez, had was spearheading a group to try and purchase the team. Uh, also, David Harris and Josh, um, David Blitzer and Josh Harris, sorry, uh, owners of the New Jersey Devils and Philadelphia 76ers were trying to purchase the team as well. Cohen still won out and uh, ended up purchasing it for uh, $2.475 billion. Somewhere in that range, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in that range. So, again, Cohen was a Mets fan growing up, uh, now is the richest owner in sports, purchasing the most expensive franchise and the, the most expensive transaction 
of a franchise in sports history. So Cohen is now the owner of the Mets, and I think Mets, hand, Mets fans are pretty happy about this. It's fascinating because this is something obviously Mets fans have wanted for a long time. The Wilpons were not uh, well-liked at this point, and it was known that you know if they didn't sell the team, they were, weren't really going to invest in it moving forward. And this was something that almost seemed like it had to happen, whether it was Cohen or Rodriguez or Blitzer. There was going to be a deal made there in some capacity. And I think everybody kind of thought the man who was going to get it was the one with the most money. And this is even on a COVID discount. He still made you know almost $2.5 billion on the team. And I think we're gonna, it's going to be interesting to see now what the owner actually does for the Mets, because we know that the Mets have made a lot of poor deals over the years, a lot of money spent in the wrong places. And we'll see now if Cohen comes in, having money is one thing, but investing in the right players is another one. And I think we're going to now see if it's enough just to have that money for the Mets or if they can actually make the right decisions and build the right team to become a competitor again, because they're in a big market. We've talked about this before. New York is the biggest market that's out there and the Yankees have capitalized on it and the Mets haven't as of late, but now they have the money to do it. And the right steps now are just to get the right players there. I think it's just another step past the right players. And I think this is something I actually got to speak with Mike Vaccaro from the New York post earlier today. And and he was alluding to how, you know, it goes beyond the right players. It it go, it speaks to uh, rebuilding the analytics department, rebuilding the international scouting department, rebuilding uh, the infrastructure of the team. And really, it, it's a whole organizational shift rather than just the players on the field. I know that's what the fans really get to see most, and you are going to see that on the field. But it, it's more so a full organizational shift that's happening. And it, it will be, I believe, it will be a challenge to the Yankees in years to come. You know, in the, in the past, the, the Yankees for many, many years – even though the Mets had their successes at times, it was never really a competition between the Yankees and the Mets. The Yankees were always the bigger team in New York. That's the team, the big name free agents wanted to come play for. And that is very likely to change now. You could see, because now, of course, Cohen has very deep pockets. You could see those players and that, and the atmosphere and the culture of the team completely change to be one that is a big market team. They won't be spending like a Kansas City. They're going to be spending like a New York Yankees, the way they probably should have been in the big market that they are. Yeah, And I think I don't want to backtrack to that point you mentioned about front office, because you're absolutely right there. There there does need to be a front office revamp. And a lot of that comes down to Brody Van Wagenen. I know that that's somebody, Mm -hmm. his name has come up so many times. We've heard him talk so much. And he's the man in charge at this point as general manager and making the moves that this team needs. And he hasn't really been doing that. Now, whether he gets... You know, let go of or not is, is a question that I think we'll find out very quickly when Cohen comes in. But like you said, Nick, I do think that revamp of the front office is inherently connected to who's going to be there in players as well. Those two things really feel connected to one another. And, you know, Cohen's job, in a sense, is not only to bring the money to the table and not only get the right players, but also, like you said, to, to revamp that front office. But in doing so, that should help the team get the players they need and start spending, like you mentioned, like the market that they're in. And they always should be because – you know, where the Mets have been these last few years is not where they should have been as a team with their reputation and their location. And I think Cohen will not present the opportunity to start really living up to those expectations. Yes, and it'll also be interesting to see what kind of an owner Steve mm-hmm. Cohen is. Is he going to be, you know, a George Steinbrenner or a, you know, Jerry Jones full in on, you know, helping run the team, manage the team? Or is he going to take a step back, you know, someone like John Mara or, you know, the Roonies are, 
you know, any bunch of different sports owners that have taken a step back and let the team and the general managers do, do their jobs. Um, I think there, those are two distinct ways to run a team. And I think if Cohen's smart, he'll be the one to supply the money, but take the step back and just enjoy the franchise. Because really that's, I, I feel like the impression I've gotten is he, he truly is a fan. Mm-hmm. And he always has been, and he just wants to see the team be a success and finally start competing with the Yankees and uh, really become a destination for players that they'll want to play. In. So what kind of owner will Steve Cohen be? I think if he's watched the Will Ponds over the years, I think he will be one that steps back. I mean, as you saw by his uh, statement, it was only 20 words, just yeah, that right. <laughs> we are excited to, that we made an agreement with the Wilpon family to purchase the New York Mets. So, I mean, there's, there's not too much to that, yeah, yeah. but uh, it, that could, could that be indicative of the way he's going to own and manage the team? Just kind of take a step back and, and enjoy the whole experience instead of being in the middle of it, which is something the Wilpons really did. And part of the concern with Alex Rodriguez becoming the manager was that, or the owner, I should say, was that he would, be, he would become too involved with the team. Having that mm-hmm. baseball experience behind him, he would be not only making you know, the financial decisions, but making the on-field decisions. And like you said, that's not what you want from an owner. I, I think Luis Rojas has proved himself to be a capable manager. Uh, he's in a very difficult spot. I think we acknowledge that. But he, he's, he's taken control of a team in a very difficult time and I think done a good job of it. So they don't need a game manager. That's not what they need from an owner. They need somebody who provides the money that the Wilpons didn't. And like you said, perfectly, Nick, I think Steve Cohen's going to be that guy. So, so a bright day for Mets fans, I would say for sure. And, and we'll see what happens in the coming uh, months, years, and, and hopefully a bright future for, uh, for New York. Yeah. I mean, being a Yankees fan in a way, it gets me worried because I, <laughs> I do see the Mets and in this ownership group as an, as a formidable force in the future. I really do. I think they will challenge the the bigger teams, the Red Sox, Cubs, okay. Dodgers, Yankees, down the line. I, I truly think that's the um, what you're getting in a guy like Steve Cohen owning the owning the team now. Okay. So that'll finish up our conversation on the Mets. We're going to move over to the Big Ten announcing that they are returning to college football October 23rd. Now, there's a lot more to this than you would think. Uh, I would. I would say it was not just the fact that they saw the ACC playing this weekend and, you know, all of a sudden they're saying, oh, we got to get involved with this because the SEC is coming back in two weeks as well. You know, I don't think it was that. It really had to do with the lawsuits coming out of, of the cancellation of the season. So for those who don't know, in Nebraska – there were eight players from the University of Nebraska that um, put on a lawsuit against the Big Ten. And they were looking mainly for an emergency stay and an emergency discovery of documents proving that this vote actually happened and that, you know, what, what they were being told was correct. So from that, they, they really never got to produce any documents. And there was a lot of questions around that, saying what's going on. So it turns out that the, one of the higher up executives at Northwestern filed an affidavit saying that there was an 11 to 3 vote against returning to college football 
Meanwhile, in Minnesota, they were saying, well, there was never officially a vote. We're not really sure. So things were just not adding up. And once a lot of the board of directors from these universities heard that, and the fact that they weren't consulted about a vote by their university presidents, a lot of the university presidents' jobs were at risk. And they knew that, especially um, with, with this order to produce documents by, I think it was sometime this week. So they knew they had to figure out what they were going to do in terms of coming back or not, because it was either they had to give an answer to the courts in Nebraska or, you know, and, and at the same time, their own jobs were on the line if, it, if the board didn't like the idea that they didn't consult them and they ended up getting themselves fired for, for not consulting them about the season and if there was really a vote. So they were in a bit of a catch-22. And I think that is the real reason why you see the Big Ten back. Now, of course, there is the element of you see the ACC playing, you know the SEC will be coming back and you're losing out on all that money. There was also the threat of another lawsuit from Ohio State suing for somewhere around $100 million. $100 million. For, for lost revenue. And that would have been filed had this season not happened. So there was a lot of legal implications around this. And that's truly the reason why they came back. Of course, the money's part of it. And, you know, there was a political element thrown in where, you know, this the football was being played in the Midwest, which is some of the key battleground states for the election. There's a political aspect, there's a, there's a revenue aspect. But the, really, the legal aspect is the key here. Yeah, and I, this is all really interesting, I think, the, the Big Ten situation, because like, it's always been framed as a health conversation. From the beginning, it's been framed as, you know, we're not going to play because we think that the long-term health risks are a little too, too large to bear, so we're going to postpone the season. Now we're, we're coming back now, it's from the Big Ten's perspective, we're coming back because we have the rapid antigen testing and we feel in a better place with how we can contain COVID. But no, Nick, you're completely right. College sports, it's what they're always about is money. And, and I think we, we all know that. Uh, and now I think this is just an example of that. Like you mentioned there with Nebraska, and, and there's been a lot of pressure from the beginning with Ohio State wanting to, to get the conference to play, of course, and also a lot of pressure from the players to want to mm-hmm. play. But at the same time, these, 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 we've talked about this before, but these college towns rely on the finances of college football. Uh, the Big Ten is actually the leading in revenue when it comes to college sports. So there's a lot on the line here. And the second that we start mentioning, you know, the legality of things and the money of things, you know that they're going to have to be put in a place where we're going to have to see college football because there's just too much pressure and too much on the line there. And I think it's really interesting in general that, that the players have really been forcing their hand in order to play because you would think, you know, we're not paying these players. Why would they want to play? I think that's like the big question everybody asks. But at the same time, they're getting a lot out of it as well. They're getting the opportunity to go to the draft, an opportunity to prove themselves again. And the colleges are also getting the revenue that they that they most desperately need from from college football so at the end of the day both parties are kind of benefiting from it in some sense but you know there is that still that risk of COVID that we can't really forget about but I do feel like what we're seeing here when the story that you mentioned is an example of it we were always walking down that path where the Big Ten was going to be forced to play eventually whether it was from one force or another it was just too much on the line here to ultimately uh, push away a season yeah yeah I mean again was there a financial factor to this most likely was there, you know, was it somewhat to save face with, with their university boards? Probably there, there was a lot of elements a lot, that yeah. went into this, 
But from the players' perspective, it was they wanted to play to make the NFL. And I believe yeah. there was one of the Pittsburgh scouts, Pittsburgh Steelers, that um, had mentioned something that he, that he was more likely to draft someone who had played in this college football season than whose school had canceled. So the Nebraska players were kind of using that as part of their legal argument saying, you're preventing us from having this opportunity which you're taking away from us that others are having. And there's no real the, – the other problem is there's no real rule to cancel a season. So it's, there wasn't much grounds for them to say, oh, we're canceling the season based on this and this, and we took these steps. They kind of just did it. And I think some of the repercussions of that was they didn't consult a lot of the, you know, boards of directors. Yeah. They didn't consult the players and the coaches. A lot of the coaches and players wanted to play – yeah. when um, they canceled the season initially. But, you know, now they are playing. And I think they felt a little bit more comfortable after watching the ACC play. Notre Dame play their first ACC game. I think they, um, yeah, they, they did see that it's possible. It's safe. Yeah. And other conferences are doing it. Why can't we? So that's really why the decision came down the way it did. Yeah, and I would like to think that, like you said, they, they made this decision because it was safe. I would like to think that that's the number one mm -hmm. reason why this happened. Can we definitively say no? But I, the, the Big Ten does seem to me like they've been – they've really thought about this from the beginning. Not They didn't really rush into a decision like the conferences that are playing right now. They seemed like they did take a step back and say, is this safe? And at the time they said no. But now, like we mentioned, if they feel like they're in a position where it is safe, the money on the line here is something that you need to take advantage of because the conference makes – in the neighborhood of 700 million and I'm just looking at the list here of schools I mean even Rutgers who's the smallest in the conference makes over 25 million and you look at Ohio State and Penn State they're in you know 100 million plus I mean that that's a lot of money that these schools depend on and we know that if we don't see football we're going to see cuts we're going to see changes in scholarships we're going to see changes in facilities we're going to see a lot of changes and I don't think that's something that these these universities are really prepared to deal with right now but you know that was kind of why I think we always thought we were going to get a season whether it was now or in the spring and I think we're seeing it now two reasons number one they feel it's good from a safety perspective and like you said nick there is pressure from the other other conferences playing as well which we can't ignore but that's also mm -hmm. in play here so big Ten's back i mean we'll see what happens with the pac-12 i think there's so much more at play there with what's going on out you know in the west coast with the wildfires and the air quality and there's just a lot with the pac-12 so i don't really think we're going to get too much into that but uh the big 10 is back and i think this is a it's a win for college football at the end of the day as crazy as it might sound yes and you know to go hand in hand with that now just came out probably under an hour before we went on air that uh, Jeff uh, Borzello of ESPN is saying that college basketball seasons will start on time November 25th uh, that coming immediately after the Big Ten decision to go back um, that they're saying that will be confirmed most likely later tonight so I, th I think this is in part because they had already had to cancel the March Madness, and if you start canceling football season, like you said, you're going to see cuts everywhere. And, you know, if it's happening at the major league levels, it's for sure going to happen yeah. at the college levels. So, as you said, Big, big Ten is back, and I think, again, I think a lot of that has to do with the legal situation that they ended up getting themselves into because of the initial cancellation. So with that, we will shift over to the U.S. Open. They uh, were playing out in Queens 
this the past two weeks and they were in sort of their own bubble setup and it was a success there were no cases um, but the revenues definitely took a hit cnbc was reporting that you know their revenue is down almost 80 percent which is a lot and mainly the only money they were getting was through sponsorship however that was up surprisingly uh, up to around 70 million so it, it was really good to see the sponsors still wanting to be involved in the U.S. Open. It's the largest annual in, well, when there's usually fans every year, usually, it's the largest um, annual sporting event in the world. It's over 250,000 people come and visit each year over the two weeks. So um, $70 million in sponsorship despite not having the fans. It shows the commitment of the partners and really the USTA working closely with them to, to activate their partnerships in unique ways. Uh, one of them in particular that caught my eye was American Express. They had a, you know, Amex fan cam where even after matches, sometimes fans would be able to ask a player a question before they left the court, which I thought was a very unique way to create interaction. Um, you know, another way I know is IBM plays a huge role mm -hmm. at the USTA in their, in their own software technology that they use on a regular basis. So really just trying to incorporate partners in any way they can, despite not having fans. It was pretty impressive to see them pull off. Yeah, yeah. And the IBM one was, I was going to reference that. That's definitely from a broadcast perspective, all these sponsorships you'd expect to see were still there. And, mm -hmm. and from a from an on the court perspective, it was also like you mentioned, Nick, a lot of creativity and seeing the typical sponsors that we would get from the U.S. Open. So I think in terms of that aspect, it was good to see things go as expected. But you talk about the hit in revenue. I think a lot of it does have to do with ratings, though, taking a big drop. We saw, you know, double digit drops in the 40 percent range. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the lack of star players that we had, which we do have to mention. And this is always going to be one of the challenges of playing international sport like tennis. And we need to bring people from so many different countries down to one single area you're going to have resistance to that and you're going to have troubles with that. And, you know, when we see guys like Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, not there, I think that doesn't make a big difference. And that was why, you know, the men's final, which Dominic team won, uh, you know, that's credit to him, but not really a, a big name player at the moment. He's going to be in a few years, but not at the moment, I would say not, not to the common tennis fan, like a Federer or Nadal or something. And that was why that men's final was the lowest ESPN's ever seen. And on the women's side, you know, Naomi Osaka is an up-and-coming player in the game and arguably the biggest right now next to Serena. And, you know, her getting there and Serena making a lot of progress led to that final being the third best uh, since ESPN took over. So you're seeing a dissonance there that you're, uh, because of star players. And I think we can't ignore that because, like you mentioned, Nick, there was a lot of success with sponsorships. And the event itself did feel a lot like the U.S. Open, which was terrific to see. But, but we can't ignore the fact that star players were not there and that that, that caused a hit to the ratings, I think, that we, we probably could have expected. Right, right. And I think the other element was some of the players were going to be going to play in the French Open. Mm. So, so that was another element where they were, like, some of the players were uneasy coming over to the U.S. because it has really been a COVID hotspot in the world. And then they would have had to quarantine and go and try and play the French. I think logistically it would have been really hard. And that's just another, you know, storyline of this year and the crazy year that uh, uh, we have had and the storyline in sports, really, which is, you know, now we're coming into the fall and there are going to be so many sporting events that hadn't happened, including 
this weekend, the U.S. Open Golf Tournament is going to be happening. Uh, you have the Masters in November. You have, uh, you know, the Preakness Stakes in October. You know, just so many different sporting events when they would never usually be there. Uh, Stanley Cup Finals are coming up soon, so are the NBA Finals. It's just kind of adding to the storyline of this year where sports are so out of whack and, you know, it's really taking people's eyes in different directions, uh, at least viewership-wise on television, that, you know, if you, I think more people would go watch the NBA Finals than they would the, the U.S. Open Finals when that's just, you know, what's happening right now. That's just what's on television right now. We, we talked about that uh, last week was about how the MLB was going to face a lot of troubles now that they have some competition for the first time in a sense. But I would say the most interesting one, and we're going to get into this next, is the NFL, because this is usually that time of year NFL season kicks off and, and they dominate the ratings. We know the NFL is the biggest TV juggernaut in, in, in the U.S., basically. And uh, you alluded to this earlier, but they took a major ratings hit in the first week of the season. And I think it's a little interesting to discuss why, because we see it in the U.S. Open. We've seen it in the MLB. We've even seen it in the NBA. Rating drops across the board. And I don't know if this is because of, you know, a, a relationship with sports that's in a difficult place right now because of a bubble, because of no fans, because of the politics of it, because of just the, the amount of things going on in the world right now. I think it's understandable why people might not want to watch sports. But the NFL is very interesting because this entire time they've gone without really paying mind to COVID, I guess you could say. They've, they've never really altered their schedules, altered their plans. And outside of having no fans in the stands, the NFL really went off as I think we'd expect so far. But even with that, they're starting to see that they're not invincible to all of this, that they're still going to be affected by, by the climate that we live in right now, and they're, they're going to be hit by it in a major way. And that's why we saw a lot of ratings drops in their first week, which I would say is a bit surprising for, for the league that's always been on top of that category. Absolutely. And with that, we'll transition into the first week in the NFL. And as you were just alluding to, um, NFL ratings taking a hit. Surprisingly, uh, the only one that didn't was Fox. Uh, in, in particular, their, their afternoon 425 block with the Bucks and Saints. That was up. But the rest, Sunday Night Football, the opening night on NBC, Monday Night Football, and CBS were all down, which is a surprise, um, especially because fans aren't in, in the stadium. So you would think maybe some yeah, that would be going point. to the games would be watching on television. Not, not as much the case. Uh, ratings were down across the board except for on Fox, which is a little surprising. They had their best opening week since 2016. Wow. So just, just an interesting note there. Uh, that, that one's a little harder to figure out. But um, speaking to what you were saying about, you know, maybe people are not just – watching sports. I do want to, you know, kind of cite one thing, which is uh, the Gallup poll, the company Gallup. Uh, they, they do a lot of polls around different things. And one of the polls they released recently was about the favorability towards the U.S. sports industry. And it's really interesting because overall, sport, this time last year, sports had a 20% positivity rating, and now it's 10% negative. And there's a, you know, they, they break down all the demographics by age, by gender and race and, you know, political affiliation, whatever that might be. But really across the board, if you just add it up total, there is now a 30% decrease in the favorability of sports in the United States. Is that speaking to the larger question of not necessarily about 
you know, the protests happening across sports uh, for racial justice, whether, you know, you're for that or against that. But it doesn't speak to maybe people go to sports as a release, as a way to get away from the news. And now all of a sudden, the news is being thrown back at them when they turn on the TV, when they see, you know, these things happening. Is, are we seeing some of that now? You know, for me, I think this is a terrific question, Nick, because I've wondered the same thing myself. Like, if I look at all the people that I know that are sports fans, I don't know any that have stopped watching the games because of the political nature of, of certain things. I don't, I personally haven't been impacted by it at all in terms of viewership. I don't really know anybody that has. But I do think for me, you know, it's interesting because I just haven't been focused on sports as much. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but in a sense, like, there's so many things going on in society right now that I think are just a little bit more important than sports, you know, and it's difficult mm-hmm. to sit back, watch a game, to cheer and, and sit there for a few hours and just escape when it's very hard to do that, when just there's so much going on in the world that you can't ignore. And I think you brought up a great point about how sports is reflecting that back at us. And it's not that escape that it used to be. I think that's a terrific point. And, you know, I think everybody has a different reason for not watching sports. Some people might be disappointed that they're playing amid COVID and maybe that they don't think that that's a smart decision to do, or maybe they're frustrated you know, about the MLB's grumblings about salary. We don't really know. You know, everybody's going to have a different reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my personal experience, I think it's just been a bit chaotic with what's happening in the world to just sit back and watch sports for a few hours doesn't feel right, I think, in a lot of respects. And that's why, for me, it's been difficult, I think, to watch a lot of sports. But and I'd be interested to hear what your, your take on that is. No, interesting. Um, you know, it, it, just looking at this survey, it's – as I mentioned, it's across all demographics. I mean, in some demographics still see sports positively, but that number has gone down since this time last year. So clearly there is a trend of the positivity ratings of sports going down across the board. The change has been negative. So it has to be, there has to be a reason for that because sports usually is seen as the great unifier, the, the escape, the thing you can go to when, you know, Everything's not really going good. You can just sit back and enjoy and watch a game. So why is that, you know, feeling of that going down? And something I thought was interesting too, when it, when it comes to the, to the protest is I, I also, when I mentioned, I spoke with Mike Vicaro earlier today, he had a great line where he said, you know, the players have, you know, freedom of speech. They absolutely should but it doesn't leave them immune to the consequences, whether that be positive or negative. And I think that was a really good way to put it because, you know, Michael Jordan used to say, Republicans buy shoes too. Now, that was the business model for a long time that sports wouldn't get involved with politics, whether, you know, you you see this, you could say either way, whether or not you support or don't support the protest. That's not neither here nor there. But now that they're doing that, you have that element where some of your fan base is going to be alienated, whether they're right or wrong. Some of the fan base is alienated. And I think that's could potentially be what we're seeing now, especially in this Gallup poll that the positivity of sports has gone down because again, whether you are in favor of protests or not, it's there, it's present, when it normally wasn't, and it was a way to relax and get out of the situation. And, you know, that's, I think, maybe why we saw the booze in Kansas City, because they didn't kneel. You know, they did not kneel during the national anthem. 
it, it was more of a, it was a sign of unity after the anthem. So it has to be more than the anthem. It has to be more than that. And just the way sports currently, the, the, the climate of sports right now, possibly. I definitely agree, Nick. And I think what's really interesting to think about too is for me is that this isn't necessarily a new trend. You know, we've been seeing mm -hmm. sports in general have been going down in ratings for a while. And to me, it's not necessarily because people lose interest. It's because of just the different way we consume media these days. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm not really sitting down on my TV and watching a game for a few hours. It's very limited that that's going to happen. unless it's a team or a game I really care about. In general, you're seeing stuff on Twitter, on YouTube, on Instagram. You're watching highlights. You're watching quick clips because that's just, I think, the type of media climate we live in today. So I don't know if I'm convinced that the, the ratings that we're seeing and, and the opinions of fans that we're seeing you know, coming out of the pandemic is, is necessarily you know, just because of those, those, those things. I think it's right. a, a product of a trend that's been going on you know, for a long time. But now we're seeing, I think, probably the biggest example of it, you know, that you have certain fans that are stepping away from the game for whatever reason. And that's kind of being combined with the different way we watch sports. And that's, you know, creating this environment where it looks like things are probably a lot worse than they really are. But, but there's no doubt that sports are in an interesting position right now because they're, like you said, Nick, they're cementing themselves with a certain political stance, whether you agree with it or not. And that's going to drive away viewers. Uh, inevitably, it's going to have an impact in some sense. And I think whether wherever you fall on that line, there's going to be an element of politics and sports that people don't necessarily want to see. And that's going to detract from a lot of audience members. But I think that's something that the players, the organizations, and the leagues are okay with if they're standing on the right side of things and, and what they believe in. Yeah, and you make a good point, too, about the, uh, the streaming, that now people are consuming their media differently. And I think that's why leagues like the NFL, in their next round of you know, TV rights negotiations, are thinking about you know, doing it using an Amazon or using a Twitter for some of their games because so many people consume media that way. And, you know, Nielsen doesn't necessarily, you know, incorporate the mobile uh, viewing of football games in with their regular TV average. So I think you make a good point there, but um, definitely the team also about your second point, the teams have shown that if they feel that they're on the right side of history, that they're willing to take that hit, they're willing to take that, um, whether that be, you know, positive or negative. And it goes back to that line where, you know, you have the freedom of speech, but, you know, you also face the consequences of that, whether that's positive or negative, whether that, you know, is the positive perception of the team or the negative, you know, decrease in viewership or whatever it may be. It comes with both sides of that. And I think that's what that Gallup poll shows. And maybe the reason why we saw the, the decrease in, in football this weekend. Uh, interesting. And we'll, we'll circle back to that in the future for sure as, as we go along with the NFL season. Uh, but our last big story of the day is uh, how New Jersey just set a single month record uh, for most money wagered in a month. And they beat Nevada, which of course – Nevada is home to Las Vegas, and that's the big sports betting capital of the U.S. Um, the original record was $614 million. So, so New Jersey smashed it with $668 million. And that's, that's an extra over $50 million. And the majority of it was mobile, uh, was online, both on mobile and online, as opposed to in-person. Obviously, right now, it's, you're not really going to be betting many places in person. But it's also speaking to the 
accessibility of sports betting, making the games exciting easily from your phone, sitting on your couch watching the game. I have a question for you first, Nick. Are you a sports better? No, I'm really Same. not. And also, it's a, it's um, a thing in the NFL, too, where if you work for one of the NFL teams, oh, you're yeah, yeah. not allowed to, to bet at all across any sports. Okay. Uh, not just football or college football. It's really any sports. Yeah. I think really horse racing and like going to a casino is the only things you could do. <laughs> and e- even um, fantasy football, there, there's a rule in there that you can't um, – it can't be worth more than two hundred and fifty dollars. Interesting. Okay. So those those are just some in, in, interesting insider facts yeah. on the NFL and the way they d- deal with the betting. But no, I wouldn't. I'm not really a sports better to begin with. No. Yeah, because neither am I. That, that's why I don't know if we're the best people to talk about this. But I think that's what's. Even though we're not sports betting, I think so many fans are nowadays, and it makes sense because you know we all feel like we know the most about sports of anybody out in the world. So you know what? If we know it, let's back it up and bet on it. And that's what we're seeing now. You know, and the fact that people are willing to put their money on the line and, and confidence in their picks. And, like, I'm just thinking from an anecdotal perspective, like, you go on the Internet when games are going on and you see people just talking about bets, you know, things happening, crazy moments at the end of games or, you know, crazy stat lines and all these things and just how they impact their bets. And there's entire, you know, I'm sure you've seen them, shows on ESPN and Fox dedicated mm-hmm. to talking yes. solely about betting, not even just fantasy football, because we all know fantasy football is a juggernaut, but just making regular over-unders and, you know, picking teams. And, I mean, that's so interesting to me is how sports betting used to be something that was frowned upon. It was, you know, ostracized. It wasn't a part of the, the game and, you know, really leagues wanted nothing to do with it. But now we're seeing not only is it become integrated into sports, but New Jersey in particular, it, it seems to be leading the charge, you know, making almost 700 million solely in sports betting. I think it, it makes sense that now would be the time we see a record because of just the amount of sports we have going on. But mm-hmm. I think this is so fascinating how it parallels with the TV ratings conversation because, on one hand, people are showing, hey, we're not interested in sports. We don't want to watch it. On the other hand, they're making more money and betting on it than ever before. I wonder why. <laughs> I mean, that's just fascinating, don't you think? No, that is interesting. You know, that, that's a good point that you mentioned. So, yeah, on the heels of bad NFL ratings, we get, uh, you know, the uh, – what was I going to say? Record setting. On, on the heels of that, you get a record in sports betting. But – I think it has to do with the accessibility of it yeah. that you can do it from your phone. If you're, you're just bored sitting on the couch, watching it on TV, you know, if it's a closed game, you bet on an over under, it makes it a little bit more exciting, throws a little bit more extra, you know, thrill into the game per se, you know, to see what happens. I think it's part of it is the accessibility of it. And, you know, New Jersey really has led the charge since the beginning. They were one of the first States to do it. And now I think with this news, you're starting to see companies like Bet365, which is a British-based company. They're, they're very big in Europe, especially Britain. They're now starting to come over to the U.S. And you have, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel and MGM really starting to uh, create these partnerships with, with the teams to for, for sports betting. And I think the reason for that is in the past, yes, it was – illegal but now it's since it is becoming legalized the the leaks are seeing this is an extra absolutely uh, avenue for revenue and the states are seeing that because they get it on the taxes they get it back um through that they see they see some money in it and then the leagues it's another and i think i know someone at major league baseball one of our alumni was saying that one of the biggest conversations now at major league baseball is how do they navigate sports betting in terms of the distribution of revenue among the teams and, and within the league and the way they do that. 
And I think that'll be a question for all the commissioners going forward. And now you're seeing a company like MGM really getting a stronghold on the rest of sports. I, I know one, I have a connection that works in, at MGM in Las Vegas and really they are growing so fast. And, you know, the leagues are still a little bit wary of how to incorporate them into uh, the games. But I know they were saying, you know, even about the NHL, you know, they're, if you notice they're on, they have an advertisement on the ice in the bubble now, you know, that's, one way they get in. So it's not, they can't really advertise straightforward yet sports betting, but you know, it's slowly working its way up. And a company like MGM is putting themselves in position that 10 years down the road, they're going to really have a stronghold on the, on the sports betting scene. That's why you see teams uh, or companies like DraftKings and FanDuel make contracts with teams going that route as today, you know, the New York giants signed a deal with, DraftKings to um, be their sports betting partner. And it, they're listed as the official sports betting, iGaming, and daily fantasy partner of the New York Giants. So, you know, and that was on the heels of today's big news out of New Jersey, that the Giants are going down the sports betting route. They do have a uh, sports betting sponsor now. And I think it truly is the way of the future. And, you know, you briefly mentioned fantasy too. You know, that, that was a whole new, in a way, revenue avenue for the NFL too. Now it may not make them physical money, but it gains them earn money. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's really the key there that they get so much extra exposure. And now you have people watching NFL red zone every single week, just to see who on their fantasy team scores games. They don't care about. Right. They're not associating with the team. They're associating with the players and, you know, the the actual, um, you know, players in involvement fantasy as opposed to a team. But, you know, there was a time when the NFL wasn't embracing the, like, fantasy football community. And now, look, as you mentioned, how ESPN and Fox has sports betting shows, they also have fantasy football shows. Mm-hmm. So I think – that's exactly what happened to sports betting, where once it started becoming legalized in some of the states, they felt that they could kind of do the same thing, start, start appealing to that crowd because it was another avenue for revenue. And I think that the teams and the leagues are very smart for doing that, especially now because it is becoming legalized. Well, and it's no surprise we hit a record now because I love the point that you mentioned about like watching Red Zone on a Sunday because especially when there's no fans there, I think – us at home want more ways to engage with sports than ever before. And, and betting is a terrific way of doing it where you, and, and fantasy where you can invest in games that you might not otherwise watch and, and mm-hmm. find a whole different way of watching sports and engaging in sports without the fans actually being there. And that's one part of why we're seeing a record. And like you mentioned, something like the Giants partnership, I'm thinking too, watching NBA on TNT, they do FanDuel advertisements in the middle of halftime shows saying, this is what we got coming up for tonight and here's the bets you can make. So they're directly integrating these things into broadcast and into, uh, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, on the ice. So when betting goes from, you know, like we said, it used to be kind of a taboo topic to being now directly integrated into the broadcast that we're seeing and the teams, that's going to be big. And I think, like you mentioned, this really does feel like the future. And I think the, the record that we're seeing now is probably going to get broken very soon uh, the longer that uh, sports betting goes and becomes a, a bigger and bigger part of, of sports. Right, right. And I mean, you've definitely seen it a lot more on the broadcast networks. They've definitely, especially within the last year, have been very open to the uh, sports betting and, 
you know, Fox with the XFL, they were throwing up the lines during the game on, on the scoreboard. I mean, that that's how involved they were with it. And even today, yesterday and today, the Eagles announced a partnership with Fox Bet that yes. now in Lincoln Financial Field, you'll be seeing uh, a full Fox Bet studio and lounge inside the, the football stadium. And they'll do live shows from there and different things like that. So the networks have definitely jumped on the bandwagon. And I think that the leagues are now too. And just a point about red zone, quick point. Last year when I was working for, for the team, for the Giants, they have a large video board above the Pepsi gate uh, in, on the inside of the stadium. And, you can, and, it, and this video board is over the concession stands. It's a very high ceiling. So they have NFL red zone on that TV. I kid you not, half of the section <laughs> was turned around watching that watching NFL Red Zone. And I was stunned because I'm thinking to myself, you know, how much money did you spend to get into MetLife Stadium to watch the Giants play right in front of you? And this was yeah. in the lower bowl. So you, so you have to think about that too. They're turning around watching NFL Red Zone. It, it was fascinating to me that, that there's that much of an affinity to not just fantasy football, but NFL Red Zone uh, yeah. among the NFL community. Now I just thought that was fascinating. And then yeah. just to like finish up on the Giants with DraftKings. Um, I, I'm glad to see them do this because, you know, the Giants are seen as more of a, you know, conservative organization. And, you know, I, again, I truly loved my time working for them. I was supposed to be working with them again this year. Unfortunately, you know, the COVID-19 with, with the cuts and not having fans, I wasn't able to do that. But you know, it, it's great to see them going down this road. And, you know, if the, if a team like the Giants see the future in, in sports betting, then I think that's an indication to pretty much every other team and every other league you better get on to because it's coming big and fast, especially in states like New Jersey where it's been legalized for a while. And even right now, I think part of the reason there was a record is, like you said, there's so many sports, but people are still home. People are still home. They're not able to go to the events, so make it more interesting with betting. So that'll wrap up our conversation on the sports betting. And uh, we got through a lot, and there was a lot of uh, sports business Busy news weeks. this week. Busy uh, a lot more than uh, last week, just, just so much going on. So we'll finish up with our Game of the Week segment. Uh, I got a different U.S. Open this weekend. It is the Golf U.S. Open, hosted by the uh, United States Golf Association, USGA. And that's from Winged Foot over in uh, Mamarnik. It's not too far from us uh, here in New York City. It's right along the Metro North Line. So uh, one of the biggest tournaments in golf this weekend will be just a few uh, commuter rail stops away from us. I'll probably tune in on the last day of that one, see who takes it home. But for me, I'm going to go out to to Germany and talk about the Bundesliga. Um, oh, okay. Changing changing a sponsorship this year, switching over to ESPN uh, from Fox. That's a big change. And uh, Friday, our first game, two thirty, will be on ESPN. You watch uh, Champions League winning Bayern Munich, so that should be some fun. And then all games over the weekend, we talk about streaming all on ESPN Plus. And I just want to mention quick, you know, also talk about Premier League now on Peacock. I mean. Streaming, it's a big thing now in soccer, too, and that seems like the way of the future. So if you want to watch the Buddhist League, head over to ESPN+, and that seems like we're, uh, where we're heading in the future. Yeah, that's why I mentioned that about the NFL. You're seeing it exactly like you said. And then CBS with the Champions League and their platform streaming. As you mentioned, Peacock, Premier League. I don't this, like it, Nick. Gonna, I don't like it, Nick. I, I, 
I'm not a fan <laughs> of it either, but a lot of networks are doing it. And um, it's a way to boost their, their streaming revenue. They get the sports crowd that way. Uh, I think it's going to start, you're going to start seeing it, you know, like, like the way Netflix and Hulu battle it out where it's, you know, Oh, I have this show. I have this show. You got to pay for it. It's going to be the same with sports eventually. I, I don't know about right away because I think TV is king for now. Still, it's still got, yeah, it's, yeah. for now, it's still got the hold, especially with uh, the advertising numbers, but down the line, for sure, the streaming networks are going to be the, the real deal. And that's why every single network is getting in on it. And that's why every single network is trying to get as many uh, sports rights to it as they can. And you're starting, you're seeing the beginning of it. And ESPN Plus has been doing it for a little bit because they've been around a little bit longer. Yes. But as you said, Bundesliga getting them, it, they're starting to work their way up. I know at one point sure. there was rumblings that, you know, maybe ESPN – would go once the direct TV Sunday NFL ticket deal was up, like contract was up, then maybe swooping that up. And that would get them huge, huge, uh, uh, I guess, enrollment, like subscription numbers, yeah, 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 yeah. huge subscription numbers. So I, who knows if that's actually going to happen, but I think that's something to think about too for the future. But um, a lot's changing. Yeah. A lot's changing. Yeah, and uh, Bundesliga match on ESPN. I'll I'll, I'll try and watch it. Uh, 2.30. Bayern 2:30. Munich, they, they were on fire last year. Uh, absolutely dominated the, the Champions League. And then, of course, Bundesliga because they're by far the strongest team over there. Uh, but, yeah, the U.S. Open golf, as, as I mentioned, I'll probably watch on Sunday too. I usually tend to watch golf on, on Sunday. Yeah. It's usually when it's the most exciting. Mm-hmm later in, in the afternoon on Sunday when they're coming down to the wire. A, a, lot, of good, a lot of good sports this weekend. Again, as we, as we keep saying, there's so many sports on television right now that uh, you can pretty much pick and choose what you want to watch. Absolutely. And it's, it's exciting for us sports fans. But that'll wrap it up for us here on Episode 2. Thanks for listening and uh, hope to have you back next week. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Fordham Sports Biz and our new website, www.bssfordham.org. We'll see you next week.